Jessie Thornton is an artist and activist. She's also the author of a forthcoming book that bears the extraordinary title of The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future. All of the work that Cassie does is intensely concerned with the pervasive barriers to flourishing that are so entrenched in our late capitalist society. She refers to herself as a feminist economist, a title that's intended to reframe the work she does as akin to social science, and as such she's focused on preparing for a future society that generates health outside of the structures that reproduce oppression, like money, police, prisons. We discuss her book and some of the claims it makes around how we can mobilize for that future. She speculates on how and why we have collectively been put under the spell of forms of care that are individualizing and actually in many ways contrary to real care. Her message is essential at a time when we feel cursed by a pandemic that mainly induces panic. It envisions a means of lifting the curse of a deep isolation so that we can let the floodgates of peer-to-peer care open. There is the sense in your book, The Hologram, Feminist Peer-to-Peer Health for a Post-Pandemic Future, that our current and unabated pandemic is a kind of divine providence, demonstrating the need for care networks and also the ineffectiveness of the neoliberal model of health distribution. For example, on what COVID has represented for those that advocate for a departure from the system of capitalism, you write that, quote, it had become apparent to most people that many of the systems that had been pretending to care for us were only interested in profit. You say that while you don't want to seem like an opportunist, it's nonetheless only because of the rupture in life created by the virus that something as weird as the hologram could be seen as possible or useful. There seems to be a surge in hope among many on the left in response to the way that the current suspension of the capitalist machine is giving, for example, the Earth's ecosystems a moment of relief, even though we know that moment is unfortunately destined to be kind of short-lived. You've got David Harvey writing in Jacobin that, quote, the liniments of a new socialist society are being laid bare and suggesting that You know, this is probably why the right wing and the capitalist class are so anxious to get us back to the status quo. Do you maintain this hope that the disruption we're seeing will create a radical shift in the public's ability to imagine a means of going in a different direction? I'm trying. Um, I I have a little I have a little hope when I talk to people like you or like, you know, we're brainstorming about what's possible. a lot of interesting stuff is obviously taking place that I feel like like a lot of the public unrest um, around race inequality and anti-Black racism and violence um, in the United States and in Canada and all over the world, a lot of the organizing that's happening, I feel like is coming from people who have time and like that time that they may never have had before. Um, so not only are they struck by like the levels of inequality that they, they've always lived within, but now they feel it more because they don't have as many distractions because they're maybe not able to go to work. Uh, and you know, people are, are desperate enough to like see other people that maybe they're willing to go outside of their comfort zone and attend a protest for the first time. Um, so I feel like there's all kinds of ways that the moment presents various types of opportunities, I mean, for the good and for the evil. Um, but I think particular to the hologram, like it 
was kind of like divine providence because I it's a project that I've been holding and thinking about and working on kind of in secret for quite a few years. And um, when I had finally agreed to start focusing on it in a public way with a with a residency in London at a gallery called a gallery and organization called Further Field. Um, the moment I arrived, COVID became serious. I think I arrived on March 2nd and like the lockdown in London, I think started on early April, but like worldwide awareness and lockdowns everywhere else ha- obviously started to happen in March. And the amount of attention and patience that people had to try something like the hologram out was really unprecedented. And we started an online course to kind of like help people understand what the hologram is and where it comes from and what the particular sort of like political spirit of the project is as well as what the social practice of it is. Um, And 28 people attended and almost no one missed a session, uh, like four unwieldy three-hour sessions. Um, And I think now like that experience really stuck with people because it was throughout April when most people were just sort of in a state of like, like total unknown. And so I, you know, I think probably the hologram is one example of many different projects that were able to sort of arrive, um, flourish because they offered something that people didn't know they needed before the pandemic, even though they always already did. I do think that there's a lot happening that might not have happened otherwise. I'm just thinking about a conversation I had yesterday with a friend who's um, working in LA, where in California, it's now that they've stopped um, incarcerating youth. And they're completely reorganizing and redirecting that money. And that had been decided before, uh, like during the pandemic, but before the uprisings to support Black Lives Matter. But now there's support to not only to not stop there, but to also think about um, the police and also think about, you know, incarceration on a larger scale in California. So I just feel like there's just like these, these ruptures that are happening that are getting like ripped way wider open. And it, it has something to do with this time where we're not so focused on like our own individual survival, because there's just, there's so much at risk at the moment on a very big public infrastructural and like yeah species level for sure and it speaks to the difference between a crisis like covid and something like climate change which has a different kind of pace and temporality you know mike davis made this point in a conversation with haymarket books there is a huge difference between climate change and pandemic disease in terms of the interest of the wealthy countries versus the poor, the wealthy classes versus the poor classes. With the pandemic, you can't entirely neglect the poor side of the city or the poor states or even the poor countries because what's incubated there uh, in conditions of substandard medical care and bad sanitation and so on is something that'll come back and bite people in the Hamptons or Beverly Hills. Climate change doesn't work like that because of the separation of the societies that produced the greenhouse gas accumulations and the societies who most disastrously feel its effects. There isn't the same kind of self-interest in addressing poor countries. The United States and other rich countries, just as they 
uh, failed to pay up their dues to the World Health Organization, have failed to finance to meet their promises to provide uh, investment and relief to countries that are now sinking under oceans or faced with great floods and, uh, and so on. But climate change, because of this, is more challenging because there is no necessary capitalist self-interest in doing something about it. With pandemic disease, something has to be done. The world market is uh, virtually collapsed. The direct impact of COVID on the economy is a sort of shock to some people. It's a sort of shock in the sense of testing faith in the kinds of institutions that, as you point out in the book, people were just tacitly assuming were healthy, even though they weren't. I got to say, you know, for this reason, I'm so grateful for your book, which you call a, a quote, open source, peer-to-peer, viral social technology for dehabituating humans from capitalism. I teared up when I read this passage at the beginning of the book and a few other times when reading the book's later sections. It's the sense of hope that it brings. And I think because it still feels like there's no perceivable alternative. You know, you make this clear when you write that, quote, even when we make other options transparent, most of us will continue to work to secure a life that is expensive to us, but that's familiar and comfortably uncomfortable. This book gives us a different path and model. And I guess I wanted to ask, like, in devising the book and the hologram project, how did you figure out a way to maintain a social vision without making the work entirely a work of theory. You call it a, quote, delivery mechanism for ideas, and you really manage to embody this idea of the book as a delivery system throughout. And it just seems to me that that is not a simple feat. Um, How did you structure the book and sustain the sense that we can make everyday life and mutual care important domains of struggle? I mean... Thank you so much. I mean, that that's like the biggest compliment and it means so much because I, yeah, I, I, I think that the, the hologram and then the book maybe have two different stories and the, the book happened really quickly and was like me jumping on an invitation that was like totally unexpected and unexpected just because we had a completely different plan in mind. Like, um, Pluto is supporting uh, this series called Vagabond to come out. And my partner, Max Haven, is the editor of the Vagabond series. Like, just because Pluto was sort of ready to publish something quickly um, this spring, and I was working on this project and had all of this writing ready, Pluto and Max had a conversation and were just like, well, it's, it's kind of here and it's ready and we could do it. And so it was a matter of kind of editing together a lot that had already existed over time. Um, So the writing like had been happening since 2016 or 2017. And like, I think that um, the organization and the way that the thing came together, a lot of credit goes to Max Haven, the editor, um, because I think he really was able to make something accessible. And I think our goal with this book is to make something that is like, really really easy for anyone to read and um so I'm glad that you could feel it because I think that I wanted to make something that people could like think about but also feel um and the the project itself is it's like um it feels like something like totally ancient and also completely brand new like when I 
when I um, started the project, it was really because I had found out that um, some of the free social solidarity clinics that had popped up around Greece um, during the financial crisis and the refugee crisis and, you know, between 2011 and now, um, they had the ideas and the ways that some of those clinics were working were so inspiring to me. And um, when I heard about one particular project that was happening there called the integrative model, where you would go to the doctor or you'd go to the clinic, a free clinic run by anarchists um, by assembly model. Uh, you would go and you'd see a real doctor, a therapist and a social worker at the same time. And that the social worker was a volunteer and that um, they would ask you all about your whole, your whole puppy, like about how, what you eat and where you work and um, how you spend your time and who your family is and to whom you owe debts and, Hey, are you lonely? but they would really get a whole picture of the person. And then they would work with the person, uh, the patient who they actually call an incomer um, to kind of ruin a sense of hierarchy. Um, they, would, they would then work with the incomer to kind of try to think about what a plan would be that would actually provide health for them in the next year without any money. And um, that in itself just felt like so amazing and impossible, but like it really turned something on in my brain that I couldn't turn off. And I've spent the last bunch of years thinking about like with many, many different friends and collaborators and um, institutions, like I've been just trying to work through little like bits and pieces of what it would mean to kind of like try to do that as a peer to peer project, um, something that could specifically survive in the United States where the medical system is so predatory and where people actually in a funny way value private expensive medical care that not that that's still the case. So I think that the model itself is like a kind of interesting experiment because I think like, like basically it's taking that Greek model and trying to say we could do it ourselves and we don't need any space and we don't need any training. What we need is like practice. Um, and so, you know, you have a person that, acts as a person who's going to be receiving the care called the hologram and then three people who basically get together quite rhythmically with that person maybe seasonally and just ask her a bunch of questions about how she's doing and one person focuses on physical stuff one person focuses on mental emotional stuff and one person focuses on social stuff and basically over time really get to know this person and like become a kind of living medical record who can help her make a decision when a big decision comes up, you know, she needs a surgery or she needs to move to a different city or she's gone homeless. She's lost her apartment. Like when you really, you know, the point is that you over time have the support structure in place so that when an emergency strikes, you have a sort of distributed care plan um, that's already established with people that already know how you tick. And the the project is meant to be viral because the idea is that you can't really receive care from people that don't are not cared for, which is, you know, obviously in the pyramid scheme of capitalism, that is not always the case and is usually not, you know, usually we, we are coerced into our jobs and our work. So, so often we receive care from people that are not well um, on so many levels. So, um, so the project then grows naturally because the people that are giving support also are supported to get their own three people to look after them. And so the project kind of like multiplies and all that just to say that it's like, in some ways it's a simple social practice. And like 
the reason that the project is an interesting experiment and like why the book is important is because the social practice carries with it a kind of like political spell. And I don't know where I'm just working through with lots of different friends and collaborators, like what it would mean to actually really like make sure that the politics stay in the practice no matter what. Um, and there's lots of ways to, to do that. But right now, like that book, I think, is a way to kind of make sure that there is an index somewhere where you can see like here's here's something that you can do that like gives you an idea of a different way of distributing like care labor um, and a different way of seeing kind of like the possibilities of like working outside of expertise within medicine. And then we can really think as we're doing this about some of the, the sort of solidified structures that we live within in capitalism that, that we're really um, acclimatized to that maybe aren't serving us so well. So like things like the way that we deal with time or time deals with us and um issues around trust and issues around um, kind of like seeing ourselves and other each other as a parts of like uh, as parts of patterns that are connected to bigger social and political projects. And so the, the book in a way is like, it's like a device that tries to connect some political spells with like a very simple social practice to make them kind of accessible. Um, and then I think that the, the spirit of the project is like partially it, it's an it's a sincere offering that like we could practice this and it could grow and it could become something that really supports us as we like enter into a time where we're just going to be like in crisis after crisis and we need sort of like a a plan um and we need a plan that can like outlast our plans or like outlast our sort of constant need to react to the crises that we're living through but I think the project also exists simply as a kind of parafiction where it it just it represents the fact that society can be like our social our social our daily social life and our society could be structured differently and that like yeah the way that our relationships move and the way that we trust people and the way that we we think about care um are not like peripheral but actually if we rethink those things and we make those something that we put a lot of time and energy and thought and ingenuity into that like actually the way we do those things could like they could actually define a new way of organizing society and we could start right now it just it wants to tell that story that that way of thinking is possible and that it's stuff we can do with stuff we already have that's that's half of the, the work is just to make that feel like it's okay to think that. Right. And I think that's what moved me so much is this idea that you stress that, first of all, we're going to need each other. And then, and I definitely want to come back to the challenges of being open to that. You know, as you write about the atrophying of the sharing muscle, I kind of wanted to explore that metaphor of musculature that you develop in the book. And I also certainly want to talk about the uh, section about the on the ground work you did during the Greek debt crisis. But on the section of your book, that discusses patterns. You write that contrary to the new age self-help industry suggestion, simply believing something doesn't change reality. Organizing and organization, you say, will be required and we have the fight of our lives ahead of us. I wanted to relate this to Arundhati Roy's point made during a conversation with Imani Perry that a post-pandemic world is being prepared for us. And unless we resist it, 
we will inhabit a corporate controlled space that's really comfortable with disposing of most of us. You know, I guess the question is like, is this the moment where we need to ask better questions to some extent about the kind of world we want to live collectively, globally in? I mean, you ask questions like whether it's true that if we were to stop producing money, to stop growing our human capital, we would die. There are also these evil notions, as you say, these hyper-capitalist notions that the cure of lockdown is worse than the, the disease. You've literally got people like Texas Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick saying that there are, quote, more important things than living, and Donald Trump insisting that COVID testing be slowed down to reduce the appearance of the number of cases. I mean, how do we address this neoliberal death spiral of insanity? Sorry, that's not so much a question as a rant. (laughs) I love it. I mean, I don't love it. I hate it, but I love that you say it. Um, I think that uh like a lot is happening for a lot of people the one thing that we know is happening right now is that no one will ever be the same or see the world the same way and um so like this is maybe like the most liberal answer i could possibly give that like i a lot of people are um they're kind of waking up and will not um go back to normal i think people are having conversations with their you know ra- young radicals are having conversations with their parents and uncles who may have thought quite differently about how things worked until now where the the the, the band-aid's been ripped off and also the scab has been ripped off and we can just see all these sort of bare wounds where um like our society was just organized in such a different way than we had wanted to imagine that it was uh i keep going back to the idea of like the the decarceration of juveniles in california because it's a system that I've worked in, like juvenile detention. As a, like as an artist, I've been I've worked in many different jails and prisons, and um, I just can't believe that there there's a there's a moment happening where like some some things that have been that seemed permanent are ending, and so we're at this moment where we get to like make some decisions, and I guess. The interesting thing is that while everything's falling apart, like a lot of people are also with way more time than they're used to. I mean, not, and obviously that time is not equally distributed because obviously lots of people are working really hard. A lot of people have kids and are working really hard. A lot of people are struggling just to figure out how they're going to sort of survive the next time period. But at the same time, there are a bunch of us also who have been working so hard for so long that we didn't have any wishes or desire for what else could be or what we would even want. Um, so it's really an interesting moment where like a lot of mobilizing seems possible. I mean, in our little town in Thunder Bay in Ontario, which is six hours north of Minneapolis, like, you know, we had a vigil on Sunday night um, just to honor and protest all the deaths that have happened at this tiny, stupid, horrible, evil little jail. Um, people that are not even. That, that who have not been found guilty, who are just in remand, have died. So many people, and of course, so many indigenous people, so many people with mental health issues. I work at Rival, the Reimagining Value Action Lab, and we organize a lot of events like this. And I also work with a feminist indigenous street patrol called Window Debway Masewin. We organize events together and separately, constantly like this. And five or six people come usually. And on Sunday night, we had almost 40 people show up 
to an event that we had planned maybe 18 hours earlier. We live in a really conservative, very white supremacist city. And that is amazing to me that that many people showed up. And what will they do next? We'll have to see. But um, I guess maybe that offers like a teeny tiny window of like something to at least watch and hope for. And you've also actively involved yourself in preparing for this future society that, as you put it, produces health and life without the tools that reproduce oppression, like money, police, or prisons. There's a popular discourse and popular support growing for defunding, dismantling the police. This is, I think, certainly a source of hope, these alternative models uh, to policing that we're seeing emerge. Um, You know, the making visible of the monopoly on violence that the police have. We could certainly speak to this, but I, I wanted to kind of unpack this language of alternative uh, care networks that you discuss, because certainly it's related to policing. You know, part of the logic of defunding the police is that public safety can be achieved by thinking about safety, community, very differently and more comprehensively, not just in terms of the superior use of force by a police apparatus that is primarily about, you know, protecting private property. In your chapter on alternative care networks that arose during the Greek debt crisis, you have this brilliant diagnosis of the sense before Trump that everything was okay. You say, until Trump's election, many U.S. citizens lived as if everything was okay, even if it wasn't. That has now changed. Trump, it seems, like the novel coronavirus, um, represents a test of certain structures, faith in institutions. What's interesting is, you've said that you were writing the hologram off and on, I suppose, since 2016. It's really from 2016 on that we see this surge in discussions of self-care. This was pointed out by Jordan Kistner in a New Yorker article from 2017. He talks about how there was this surge in, in the use of the self-care hashtag. There were you know, 1.6 million images tagged in this way on Instagram and a few million more on Twitter and Tumblr, and most of them just in that one year. And so ideas about self-care are surging in response to national stress levels. And Google searches of the term peaked right after Trump's election. I wonder if you could elaborate on why you feel like the language of self-care that's come to prominence over the last few years is problematic. I mean, you have this section in the hologram where you talk about the complex nature of our wishes. Self-care is definitely predicated on living our best life, you know, finding our joy, fulfilling our wishes. But that section asks us to dig deeper and think about, you know, what is below this wish? Is it that you seek stability? You ask, you know, do you desire safety? Do you want to experience natural beauty every day? I think many people would benefit from asking themselves the questions that you pose in that section because they're maybe kind of hung up on a model of self-care that's unsustainable to some extent as a cure for these high stress levels. I mean, I feel like the term self-care, like it's, it's not the same for everyone. I do. I actually, I think I've come to terms with the fact that self-care is like really important for certain people in certain situations. And um, like among my friends who are racialized, you know, social justice organizers living in really violent and difficult places, um, I think that self-care can be really, really important. And it's a language that represents like, uh, the ability to kind of reproduce yourself so that you can continue to fight. And within that context, self-care is really important. But in general, the kind of like liberal, very, very white use of self-care as something that like 
is just undeniably good is it's just like throwing in the towel to me. It's like we've already given up. Nothing is going to get any better. I refuse to acknowledge that people all around me are suffering. I'm just going to go and take a bubble bath. I'm going to uh, give myself affirmations so that I can continue to go to work and reproduce myself, which is an unhappy self that's probably quite disconnected from like movements and struggles. And I think it totally denies the fact that like as humans, which I will like always you know, go back to as a cooperative species, like there's just no way that a person can achieve health when people all around them are suffering at the levels that they're suffering. And when inequality is what it is, like we have just people dying all over our feet. And I think the the image I always keep in mind when I think about like, or the image that comes to mind when I think about self-care is like the the times when I've lived in San Francisco or New York City. And I'm, I literally can see like, the people with money drinking, you know, expensive espresso drinks, stepping over the bodies as they enter the yoga studio. And I think that's how I picture self-care so often. And again, it's not always, but I think um, it's so much about uh, a kind of reproducing a kind of individualism that um, just creates more of the same bullshit. Um, So at the same time, though, I think that the the hologram book and the the project is actually about asking for help, which is much different than self care. Um, and I think, like, in some of the upcoming programming that we're doing for the hologram, it's all about specifically uh, diagnosing what it means and why we cannot ask for help. And so, if we kind of begin to compare, um, like the the ideas and the uses of self-care in comparison to actually like reaching out and being vulnerable, vulnerable and like honestly stating what you need to people who are around you so that like there could be some sort of solidarity or recognition that we're all struggling, uh, really similar struggles. I just think that the, the conversation could just get so much more interesting. You know, I think this kind of brings us to the metaphor of the atrophy of the sharing muscle. One of the main insights of the book is this idea that we are trained to expect bad support or unexpected punishment when we're most in need. So we may start to avoid seeking any kind of support and believe in self-reliance. We saw this in the wake of the lockdown where the U.S. government was forced to devote funds to bailing out businesses, but did so in the most tangled, ineffective way, producing unnecessary bureaucracy, disregarding small businesses. There wasn't any sense that the government itself in an economy that's worth $27 trillion or whatever, should just pay people directly. Instead, communities have been forced to work their sharing muscles again, which have, as you say, kind of atrophied under neoliberalism. I wondered if you could elaborate on this metaphor of the sharing muscle. I'm hoping to sort of explore it a bit further because it's a metaphor that actually runs through the whole history of philosophy, and especially utilitarian philosophy, as um, Sarah Ahmed points out in her most recent book, What's the Use?, She talks about the metaphor of the blacksmith's arm in particular. Ahmed writes that, quote, the heaviness of the tool also relates to the hardness of the material that's being worked upon. What is heavier and harder is more resistant. More force is required to work with what is more resistant to transformation. The problems we face are heavy and hard. I wonder whether or why we need more sinewy, resilient muscles for caring and how we prevent them from atrophying again. Wow, that what a quote. Um, though I've spent a lot of time in other places, I feel so American. So um, 
that's like the kind of I think my gonna still be my position for now and where the hologram comes from in a lot of ways. I think in the United States, the sense that when you are um, when you really are offered when you're really in need and you're offered a chance to at something that you didn't think was possible when you're given like a a, a bit of like a a crack in the sidewalk and like you know handed an opportunity that could help you um so often that uh the help you receive is like sort of toxic and it never actually gives you the thing that it promised to give you um instead it sort of takes away more than it ever gives and i think like the the one example from you know just recent times is just that like the small business um grants that were offered in the united states um were all given to banks and you had to go to the bank to apply to get them and by the time you you would apply and you would spend a bunch of time doing working on bureaucracy or being on hold and i know people that called for days and days and days on end finally they would make it to the bank um and have a meeting and at the meeting the banker would tell them um that either they were too late and all of those grants had already been distributed or they would have them just kind of, they would just lead them on a never ending sort of waiting spree and a with tons more bureaucracy only to find out then in the mail or a text message that they didn't qualify or they were too late to get the money so often when a person is is in a situation where you are made really really precarious or vulnerable and you, the only the only way you know to get help or the only way you feel like you can get help is by going to a corporation or some sort of like bigger institution and that every time you go to get that it never actually offers you anything that actually helps i think it it makes you stop like seeking help or wanting help or trusting that help is even a thing um but then i think in that in that process it's really easy to kind of like lose the skills that it takes to like ask and negotiate for help from other people um and i think that happens like in so many ways and and on so many levels but like being in a part of a part of community where like you actually know people well enough to like ask in a really specific way for something that you need and the need comes from a vulnerability like that takes like practice it takes uh long-term relationships sometimes it takes um sometimes like a negotiation because maybe the other person can't give all of what you need and so maybe you have to kind of work out what's possible maybe it's not uh like a one-to-one -one thing maybe um you know i really need a kidney transplant and I have to ask several people um and I have to go through years and years of negotiating within people within my community to figure out like who has my blood type and how I'm how would that work. I just think that the at all levels like that type of interpersonal negotiation takes like so much work. And if if we're used to just going to a payday lender uh when we need help or we're used to um and we're used to like using an app when we need help or whatever it's just like we just don't have the skills and so i think in the hologram project like we're working really hard to create situations where the person that is organizing the support for themselves is seen as a teacher um and that their ability to 
ask for and design help that they actually need um, from people who want to give it to them makes them into like actually creates a positive hierarchy like they are a teacher they're an expert at, at knowing and understanding and being able to communicate about their own health and needs um, which is obviously something that's not only are we out of practice it's just like really devalued by our society so it's like a muscle that I think needs a way to be to be exercised like that we just need lots of opportunities to kind of practice and fail or practice and learn together um, what it is to to actually rely on each other and not just in superficial ways because I I often get told by people when I like give presentations about this stuff that lots of people are already doing this but then and I think that that is true but also a lot of the examples are often quite superficial we're not talking about like kidneys we're not talking about like large sums of money we're not talking about sharing homes we're not talking about reorganizing our lives for each other we're talking about like yeah I can pick like yeah I pick somebody's son up for, from school every once in a while I just feel like the the type of muscles that I, we need to build to create a new world and a new economy means like actually really depending on each other for really big resources because we honestly do have enough it's just a matter of figuring out uh, figuring out situations where we can actually like trust each other to be able to share the resources that actually matter to making um, to making more life more possible for more people. Yeah, and I really appreciate that when you raise these issues, when you ask these questions, you're not exactly positing yourself as an expert. You're positing yourself as an artist, and even that label you have issues with. You talk about how it's mainly used to surprise people. And so that suggests to me that you're constantly trying to learn how to create a more radically, I suppose, empathetic, ethical, post-capitalist future yourself. And to me, this relates to another place where the metaphor of musculature comes up in your book, where you talk about Lauren Berlant's book, uh, Cruel Optimism, and how that book came to her as a, as a response that was um, pre-conscious, almost muscular. And you relate this to your own experience as a, quote, financial survivor, it's clear that these are kind of scars, scar tissue, muscle memory, that you're interested in unlearning or undoing in yourself to an extent. You seem to feel as though it's produced a survival instinct that's somewhat introspective or individualistic. Is the work that you do through Rival to organize and connect, to create networks of holographic care, part of the work of undoing this capitalist musculature in yourself? Oh, for sure. I mean, I think all of this work, like the reason I think the power of the hologram is just that it's like, so um, it's, it's so hard. It's so hard for me. Um, because I think I am, I am the subject of my experience. Like I am, my character is uh, one that comes from being like a, a part of a white American hyper competitive um, hyper racist culture, and I think I'm really, really interested in uh, experimenting with how to find my way out of it, or find my way into becoming something else, to becoming a part of a cooperative species that I uh, that I I feel is possible, but that I don't know from experience. And I think like um, the work that I do with Rival and um, with Window Debway Masewin and, you know, that I've done with debt resistance organizing. I think it's always 
um, coming from a really personal place of like both not knowing, but uh, reaching towards like some sort of possibility that I know has to happen collectively. um, But, and that all change needs to happen collectively, but that um, I don't, I don't think anyone can do on their own. And so I, I definitely come to all of this not as an expert, but as like, um, like with a strong intuition that something is possible. And like, obviously, I've accrued the skills as like an organizer and as a writer and as like a oh very weird artist. But I think like my position is really as a person that's like, like really searching for something to believe in and um, a way forward that I wouldn't have to do alone. And to that point, I think my favorite part of the book is the Wikipedia entry from the future. You use this um, this habit of Wikipedia writers of including citation needed in square brackets throughout your entry, but it's kind of used satirically. And I wonder, what did that stylistic joke represent for you in, in your book? Um, you know, there are actually feminist activists who have sought to organize a rewriting of Wikipedia who have met, been met with an extraordinary backlash. Um, and Sarah Ahmed, of course, talks about this policy and politics of feminist citation. I mean, I think of canons um, and disciplines being formed through, through straight lines, straightening devices, which also are about telling you what to cite and who to cite. Mm-hmm. And what it means to cite well often means to cite those who've been understood to have already um, determined a field and those decisions are not only decisions about significance and influence, they're also decisions about worth. It's a brilliantly original idea. What was that joke about, this habit of Wikipedia writers? <laughs> I didn't even think about uh, Sarah Med and, the, and her citation politics, but I love that connection. It's perfect. Um, I mean, I think... The that writing came because I was invited by this amazing uh, newspaper project called Art of the Working Class to write an article uh, for the Venice Architecture Biennial and uh, to go in a newspaper that would be distributed there. Um, and the the theme of this newspaper was going to be uh, that the newspaper itself was from the year twenty thirty eight when everything was kind of okay. And um, I just loved the proposal so much. And so I, I wrote the Wikipedia for that. So that's, that's why it's sort of, it's meant to be a kind of like post-internet Wikipedia entry that's in print that would be distributed much like some projects, like, I don't know if you know, the memory of the world.org, um, where like, you know, you have a, a huge online archive that then you can like download onto a, onto a single a single like thumb drive or something and, and then begin to pass it person to person because the inner because we don't know how long the internet will last as it is or whatever so the, the wikipedia like the kind of the i think the the there's so many different kind of layers to like what is the joke of that project but i think the the main one is like that it's me thinking through like what is going on right now? I was writing it in, I think at the beginning of April in the pandemic. And I had to, I've been changing that article a lot because 
the story of what is going on right now, which in the Wikipedia article is called The Great Isolation, um, is that story keeps changing. And at the beginning, when I first wrote it, um, it was right when we were wondering if um, if uh, Donald Trump and um, uh, Boris Johnson and uh, Bolsonaro, there was a moment where we wondered if all of them might have COVID. So originally, I don't, I don't know which, which version you have of that Wikipedia entry because we've edited a couple times now, but the Originally, um, I proposed that like the hologram really grew um, just after the Great Isolation of 2020, because during COVID and the Great Isolation, um, we lost all of the patriarchy, like all the kind of like powerful white world leaders, all of the um, the leaders of the heads of corporations, all these white men died. And actually, COVID was like, that's why there was this sort of like the pandemonium around COVID was because it was killing off all of these powerful men. And so the reason that the hologram ended up spreading and becoming like an internationally used practice that was almost without a history was that uh, it just got so easy to organize after we didn't have the patriarchy in charge. And, and then time went on and on and we could see that actually None of the people, none of those leaders had, or I guess Boris had COVID, but nobody, none of, we didn't actually see the patriarchy die. What we actually saw was that racialized and poor people all over the world were the ones that were most affected. And so actually, you know, COVID accentuated that racial divide. And um, so that joke had to be taken out. <laughs> and I think like, you know, it's been interesting because actually like the, the prophecy that's supposed to be in that Wikipedia entry. Um, it's It's been very, very right in some ways and very, very wrong in other ways. And so all the different sort of like citation needed thing, uh, notations leaves a space for uh, that to be kind of okay. But also to just say that like, like there's so many, you know, gigantic claims inside of that article, like how the hologram grows to be as big as Beyonce, but maybe more, more accessible and, uh, you know, citation needed. Um, because it's just like, it was just such an, having that, uh, as a kind of like a tool in the, in the writing meant that, um, I could say whatever I wanted. It's great. And yeah, the version I have still has this kind of wiping out of all of the patriarchy in it. And, you know, when I read that, I was sort of delightfully shocked at this bit of satire, even though I sort of sensed that it would need to be rewritten because of the way that the pandemic has careened so destructively through communities of color. Um, you have to admit, though, that people like Bolsonaro and Trump in particular would have it coming. I mean, Bolsonaro is at the helm of a complete and utter human tragedy in Brazil. His apathy has cost untold lives and especially caused this calamitous loss of life in indigenous communities. But um, I wanted to ask again about this Wikipedia entry from the future and the idea in it that the hologram will represent a shift in certain kinds of indexes of happiness, of collective well-being. You talk about how in the future the accumulation of capital will be replaced by the use of a health accumulation index, the autonomous coordination of socially necessary labor, practices of non-transactional attention and care, and de-schooling from competition. 
In particular, that notion of a health accumulation index seems to me so radical and fluid, it exceeds and supersedes a concept we already have, a quality of life index. Um, how did you come up with these terms, and what do you think is maybe flawed about the concept of a quality of life index? You know, these ideas require radical renovation. How did you go about rethinking them? I mean, uh, I, I often identify as a feminist economist, <laughs> um, just uh, because then I think in some ways people treat me a little bit differently, but also um, it's something that I've been thinking about and working on in, in my art practice or whatever my practice is uh, for, you know, a decade. And I think that like my sense of what a feminist economy is or could be is just like a world where uh, we put like the creation of health and life at the center and um, so I think all of the ideas that I'm mentioning there are just they're quite broad and related to what it would you know dreams that I have or little ideas that I, that we could use as ways to kind of counter the the way the forms of measurement um, that we use right now to determine like what's working and what's not working. But I think like the um, the health accumulation index. I mean, I have no idea what that would be. I think that the um, yeah. I mean, I think that they're like they're kind of like prompts for what we could think about for what we what we might need to like to start to focus on and maybe not measure but center um, and coordinate. But I think they like the the example of like the sort of de-schooling of competition um, and undoing our relationship to transaction. Those are things that I think I include specifically because the um, in the hologram, like in the in the kind of workshops that we hold or in the various types of like events and writing that's done around it, um, we often spend some time thinking about some different parts of life that we take for granted, like, you know, uh, participating in transactions related to like every, you know, transactions within every type of exchange and that we like constantly want to reproduce transactions. And the same with competition, that competition is just something that in some way like has produced us and that we, we reproduce it. And so um, I think I kind of stuck those things in because I just, I wanted to keep some sort of like patterns throughout the book so that uh there weren't there weren't ideas that were just sort of like let lay that they kind of like are it's the book is a bit more of like a weaving um so that you can kind of pick it up and put it down and and maybe some of the some of these ideas will transform kind of unconsciously because they just sort of keep showing up I don't want to keep you too much longer but I want to thank you for writing this beautiful book I think honestly it's such a gift and I hope, you know, the Wikipedia entry that it includes is a prophecy for the utopia we will someday inhabit. And uh, it's a gift I plan on giving to others. Thanks for putting it together. Oh, thank you so much. That means so much from you.